0: Getting a little bit of echo in my voice. It's not naturally me. I'm not a millennial, but I get the, I, I, I know techie stuff. <laughs> Our text this morning is in Job. Chapter 1, we're going to be reading or focusing primarily on verses 20, 21, and 22. The text will appear behind me as well. Before I read, though, um, before I read the text and pray for God's preaching, or preaching with God's Word, I want to give a summary of what's going on before our uh, text for this morning, Uh, and then I'll read and pray. So let me give you a... Just some background on what's going on in 1st Job. Job is an upright and blameless man from the land of Uz who feared God and turned away from evil. This is how he was described. He was very wealthy. He had seven sons and three daughters, uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen and 500 female donkeys, obviously requiring a lot of land, and he had lots of servants to take care of those animals and the land and everything else that went on. So no doubt a very important and wealthy man, but also a God-fearing man. Whenever his children would hold feasts in honor of the birthdays, he would rise early and offer burnt offerings for all of them, because he figured in their celebration, they may, may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Uh, so he would offer a sacrifice and pray for his children, a, a godly man who obviously loved his children and everything he had because it was uh, well taken care of. It had to be. You don't, you don't have 7,000 sheep uh, and run an unorganized place. It just doesn't work that way. Sheep go all over the place. You have to herd them. That's a pastor's joke. You all didn't get it, I guess. (laughs) There was a day when Satan was in the presence of the Lord, and God said to Satan, "Hey, have you have you noticed my servant Job? That there is none like him on earth. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil." But Satan said to him. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so God said, Okay, you can have your way with all that he owns, all his possessions. Just don't lay a hand on Job. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, so you don't lose any perspective of what happens next. I'm going to read now verses 13 through 19. This is what it says. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with, an edge, with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck down the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So now that brings us to our text this morning, where our focus will be in verses 20, 21, and 22. So let me read that now, and then I'll pray. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground. And worshipped. And he said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return." The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Father, as we open your text here, Lord, we ask that you would enlighten us this morning to your truth. Allow your truth to then pierce our hearts and cause change, Father, where where change is necessary. Allow us to agree with your text, Father, your truth, and make it a part of our lives, Father. I ask especially for your help, the Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and and teach us this morning, to be with us, and to, to fill us with your word, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. My title for this morning's message is Finding Hope in Our Comforter, Finding Hope in Our Comforter. We just finished up last week um, our series on 1 Peter, which is a letter that speaks to hope-filled Christians in a post-Christian world. Uh, we went from the second week, I believe it was in November, all the way through the second week in, in April, five months. Now, not every week did we uh, do a, a sermon on the series because we had uh, Christmas in there and New Year's and, and, and um and Easter and so forth, but, but most of, this, of the weeks we did have uh, something about the sermon, It's an excellent piece of work. I thank God that, that he inspired Mark to do this particular series. We've learned a lot. If you missed anything, I would urge you to go to the website. It's posted there. You can, you can listen to the various sermons there. Um, there was a lot of talk about how to live through unjust suffering and how we're able to do that through Christ. And I ended the series last week with a sermon about how Peter encourages us that humiliation leads to exaltation. And at the very end of my sermon, there was a call to stand firm in our faith. But in order to stand firm and in order to be successful, we must have a good understanding of where our hope lies. If there is no hope, we're lost. If there is no hope, then uh, you know in our lives, wh- wh- why? Wh- what's the point? What, what's the point of, of of doing each and every day? There's no hope. Hope gives us direction and purpose. We're, we're not machines. We're humans created in the image of God, designed for a purpose, or designed with a purpose for a purpose, and that is to worship and glorify God forever. Now I think Job helps us to gain a better understanding of where to find our hope. And so that's my intention this morning is to help us gain a better understanding of where to find our hope. So let's begin with um, point number 1. Job did not change or charge God with wrong. Job did not charge God with wrong. Now, Job is seated, maybe having a meal or resting, and in comes a servant of his to bring him a report. This is nothing unusual. He's got a very large place. He probably gets multiple reports a day, maybe even hundred reports a day. Um, he's got a lot of animals, a lot of servants. You know, he's got a huge spread, so I can imagine there's a lot going on. I wouldn't even be surprised if in all the reports he gets, there are some bad reports mixed in with the good reports. And so a servant comes in to tell him that all of his oxen and donkeys have been wiped out by the Sabaeans. They took them and killed the servants. Now, most people, when, when they receive bad news, they're like, you know, It may take a moment to sink in what's actually happening. Uh, they may be in shock. Their minds may be racing with, with questions like, like how and why. This is what usually happens when we hear bad news. But Job wasn't even able to process the first bad news when, while well, the first servant was still speaking, another servant came in to give him bad news. This servant brought news that that the fire from God, which I can only assume was lightning, came down from heaven and burned and consumed the sheep and servants. And again, without a moment to let this sink in, another servant came in to bring news before the other servant was even finished. This time, the news was about a group of people, the Chaldeans, who descended on the camels and took them and killed the servants. Once again, without even being able to utter a word, the next servant who was waiting in the wings came in to give him yet another report of bad news. But this time, it wasn't possessions that the news was about. It wasn't wasn't about camels or sheep. It wasn't about oxen or donkeys. It wasn't about the land or even more servants this time it was about his children each report was building on top of the devastation as he heard reports of how his possessions were either taken or killed and how his servants were slaughtered and yet this report was even more devastating than all three of the other reports put together his servant told him that a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house where his seven sons and three daughters were having a meal. And they're all dead. They're all dead. Now it doesn't say how long it was or how much time had passed between hearing the last report and when he stood up. But you have to imagine that he must have taken time to process all this that was going on. His mind had to process not just one, but four reports, four reports of bad news. With the last report confirming the destruction of everything he owned, all he had, and almost, almost everything that he loved. His wife was spared So it wasn't his whole family, but all his children. You better believe Satan was whispering in his ear. Okay, go ahead. Curse your God. What do you do when you have bad news? What do you do when you hear bad news? How do you react? first thing that tends to come to my mind is who's to blame? Who's to blame? Who's responsible for my grief? Who can I charge? From whom will I gain retribution for my suffering? Uh, Our mind is consumed with finding out who's responsible. Who do we charge? Who's going to pay for my suffering? In some cases, when we don't find someone who's responsible right away, we'll make someone up to be responsible. We become irrational because in our grief and sorrow, our mind just goes crazy. It can be overwhelming, no doubt. Especially, especially over loved ones. Now, Job had plenty to blame. There was no doubt, no questioning of who's responsible. The reports came in with exactly who was responsible. There were the um, Sabaeans, fire from heaven, obviously from God himself. There were the Chaldeans who were also to blame. And then for the death of his children, there was God. Again, he could have charged And cursed. But the next verse tells us exactly what he did next. What he felt and what he did. Verse 20 says, Then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. So he rose, he arose, tore his robe and shaved his head. These are acts that display anger and grieving or mourning. He was stoic when the reports were coming in. He, he didn't even have time to respond or to say a word. But then when the reports had finished, he stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Judaism includes elaborate practices of mourning the loss of a loved one. Jews often uh, practice the rendering or tearing of garments called Uh, mourning sometimes included shaving one's head or or putting ashes or or dirt or dust on the head in in addition to rendering garments. And sometimes tearing of one's garments can be a display of anger and disgust. Remember when Jesus was being questioned, by the high priest and the scribes on the night of his capture. And the high priest tore his robe because he believed Jesus spoke blasphemy. During his questioning in Matthew 26, 62 through 65, it says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us. If you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Apparently, tearing your garments is an indicator that you're really angry. Today, we don't, we don't do much of that. Garments cost too much. Can you imagine? Hey, sorry, I, I, I crashed your car. You, you What? <laughs> what? Oh, it was your car? Oh, oof. it wasn't my car. We don't do that. So Job displayed grief, maybe even anger, and he was, he was in mourning. But his next act says a lot about his character and what he believed. He fell to the ground and worshipped. He fell to the ground and worshipped. Falling, falling to the ground was a sign of humbling himself before his God. He humbled himself and worshipped. Remember 1 Peter? Humiliation leads to exaltation. First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He was obviously grieving. Job was obviously grieving. He was, he was in mourning, but at the same time, he was humbling himself before his God and worshipped him which demonstrates that he knew he knew and he understood where all his blessings came from which were told which were told of in the very next verse verse 21 which I'll come back to in a minute but let me jump ahead to the last verse in the chapter to close out this point job had many to choose from to charge there were this Sabians, the Chaldeans, and even God. But verse 22 is very telling of what he did and, more importantly, of what he didn't do. Verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You see, Satan failed. Satan failed to get the result he was expecting. He failed to get Job to curse God. Not because Satan didn't do enough. Oh my, he, he wiped out all his possessions and even took his children from him. But did Job charge God? No. Somebody cuts in front of us on the road and we're yelling obscenities pointing the finger, or maybe a finger. We're yelling at them, and we don't even know them. If we have a bad day, we're looking for someone or something to blame. <sighs> I must have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed. We become ill, seriously, or one of our children is diagnosed with an incurable disease, and we, and we say, you did this, God. God. Why? Is is this for my good? Is this your perfect will for my child? Where's my humility? Where's my humility? Am, Am I placing myself under the mighty hand of God? Am I worshiping him? Job did. Job did because he He knew where his comfort lay in all things. He knew where his comfort lay in all things. Point number two, what was Job's comfort in life and death? What was Job's comfort in life and death? Job's comfort wasn't wasn't in material things. It wasn't in possessions, things he owned, property he had, whether it be land or livestock or servants. God obviously blessed him with possessions. Verse 3 says, He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Obviously wealthy and great. Job's comfort wasn't in his children. It wasn't in his children. There's no doubt that he loved them, that he mourned their death. He was obviously a loving father who prayed and sacrificed for his children, even when they might have sinned in their hearts towards God. In verse 5 it says, he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of, of them all for Job said it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts thus Job did continually so he was a loving father who prayed for his children continually he loved them but his comfort was not in his children or his family Job's comfort was in God. His comfort was in God because he had a correct understanding of who God was and what he was to him. Job knew what he came into this life with and what he will take with, him, with himself when he departs. Verse 21 says, And he said, Naked I came, and naked shall I return. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Obviously, he's not returning to his mother's womb. That's not possible. What he's saying is that he came with nothing, and he'll depart with nothing. He didn't come with any possessions. He didn't come with any of his loved ones. He he can't leave with any of his possessions, and he can't leave with any of his loved ones. Of course, he cared. Does this mean that his possessions and his loved ones mean nothing to him? Of course not. He cared. You don't have all that he had and not have pleasure in it. You don't have children to try to raise them right just because you have nothing better to do. Of course, he cared. But he understood that his possessions and his family were not where he found his comfort. Because all that he had, all his possessions, and all that he loved was given to him by God. His comfort was in God. And we're told that rather loudly in the second part of verse 21, where he says, The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is saying, these these possessions, they're not mine They're gods and he's given them to me for a little while and when he decides, he'll take them away or he'll take me away from them. These children, the Lord has seen fit to give them to me for a little while and he may take them as he chooses or he may take me. You see, I'm not in control, my God is. And I'm okay with that because my purpose is not to gain wealth and riches because it will all fade away. And besides, I can't take any of it with me. My purpose is to glorify him and honor him with my worship because he is worthy. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is Job's comfort in life and death. So so what is my comfort in life and death? My last point for this morning, finding hope in our comforter. Finding hope in our comforter. This question, what is your only comfort in life and death, comes from the first part of the Heidelberg Catechism. Written in 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism, catechism, I can't speak right now, uh, it, it was built as a, confession, a, a confessional document taking the form of a series of questions and answers uh, used for teaching Reformed Christian theology. And So, we're going we're gonna to post this first question and answer from this catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is, because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I was introduced to this recently from a a blog post that, that Dinah shared with me regarding how to give comfort to someone who is in pain. The blogger Vanitha Rendell Reisner, wrote this post titled, What True Comfort Looks Like. It Doesn't Whitewash Pain. It was her title. And as I read it, it helped me to get a better understanding of where I should seek my comfort in life and death. And I want to read portions of her post now as an introduction to my last point. This is what she writes, or portions of what she writes. A dear friend of mine recently learned that her husband has cancer. Her neighbor sympathized, but immediately dismissed her concern, saying that countless people get cancer and ultimately live long, healthy lives. She needn't worry. It would undoubtedly be fine. How did her neighbor know that? What if it wasn't fine? Why do we offer whitewashed comfort anyway? Perhaps it's because we want our friends to feel better immediately. Even if our comfort is temporal, we want them to move on and not dwell on the negative. And we subtly believe that God will be more glorified in healing and wholeness than in sickness and brokenness. My friend told me where she had found true comfort. So she proceeds to quote from the catechism and then says, The greatest comfort we can have is to know that we belong to Jesus. That nothing can separate us from his love or snatch us from his hand. His precious blood has redeemed me. There is no outstanding debt with God. And Satan has no power over me, so there is nothing to fear. This is true comfort. No matter what happens, God will preserve me. He knows every detail of my life and every hair on my head. Nothing can happen to me apart from His sovereign will. Everything that happens to me is for my good and God's glory. And she ends with this. Because we are assured of eternal life in heaven, we can endure anything in this temporal life on earth. When we know our end is glorious, we can joyfully and willingly live for him no matter what our circumstances. I was comforted by her post. A reminder that we belong to Jesus. If if you've accepted him as your savior, your comfort should be in him. The one who sacrificed his life for your sins. My hope is is in my Savior, Jesus Christ, who is my comforter. My life is not defined by successes or failures, by my possessions or even by my family. It is defined by my Savior because I am saved and owned by Him. He has purchased me with His blood, forever made right with God through His sacrifice on the cross, set with an eternal Inheritance kept for me in heaven. This gives me hope. Job lost everything he had. All his possessions, his children. And he did not charge God with wrong. His comfort was in his God, who gives and takes away. He humbled himself and worshipped his God, saying... Blessed be the name of the Lord. I came with nothing. And everything I have is not mine. I also would not leave with anything except this. Salvation in Jesus Christ. And Because of that truth, I will forever be able to worship in the presence of my God and my Savior. Knowing that truth gives me the freedom to, to worship him now and forevermore regardless regardless of my circumstances find hope in your comforter Jesus Christ if you call him your savior let's pray so father we find hope in your son who sacrificed his perfect life for my sinful life. His sinless life given up for me. Lord, that I would be able to then worship you for an eternity if I call him as my Savior. Lord, thank you for the hope you've given me for those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. For we know that one day we will fall to the ground and worship you. But Lord, even then, help us do that now. Help us to humble ourselves and to worship you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.